this is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help people get stuff done, but more importantly, to help people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guests today are David Bradford and Carol Robin. They are the authors of the book Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends and Colleagues. David and Carol are the course founders for Stanford's most popular and legendary MBA elective course, Interpersonal Dynamics, affectionately known as the touchy-feely course. And they have a combined 75 years of teaching experience helping some of the world's leading business people develop their EQ as well as their IQ. In this episode, we talk about how you can do all this touchy-feely stuff better and how it impacts leadership, relationships and business success. This is David Bradford and Carol Robin. So I'm with David Bradford and Carol Robin. Um, How are you both doing? I was going to say this afternoon, but for you, it's this morning because you're over on the West Coast of the States. How are you doing? Early. (laughs) Early. We're waking up. I still have my coffee. (laughs) So you're having your um, first morning coffee of the day. I'm having about my 15th afternoon tea. Uh Uh, So there we go. Uh, So welcome to Beyond Busy. It's lovely having you uh, on the show. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your book, um, which is called Connect. And before we get into that, the book is based on a really legendary program. um, You both set up at Stanford. And um, I just wanted to get into that. So uh, you're uh, both... Uh, course leaders on the touchy-feely course. So should we just start with that? What is the touchy-feely course, first of all? Well, this is a course that um, has been at the School of Business for over 50 years and started off very small and now is the biggest uh, elective and most popular elective. It's a course in which students work in small groups and learn about how they relate to each other by relating to each other and getting feedback from their peers. So it's right. a very powerful course where people start to hear, this is how you come across to me. This is what you do that makes me close to you. This is what you do, which puts me off a bit. And they learn how to do that, not in a brutal way, but in a caring way. Nice. And, and, and I'll add that I think the reason the course has had so much impact and become so legendary is that it turns out to be life-changing. That's how students and alums refer to it. Uh, Life-changing and thousands of them over decades describe it that way Uh, because of the impact it has on them both personally and professionally. Yeah. And I did some reading about the course and there's um, quite a large component of it, which is basically a blank page, right? So you put people in groups and it's up to them to come up with the content. It's up to them to come up with the schedule around it. So like who whose idea was that and tell me a bit more about how that works <laughs> well that actually started about 80 years ago in a program in um in Connecticut right after World War II where they were training community leaders to open up 
uh, housing for African Americans in the North. And uh, so they were doing training, and but they were also doing research on group, group behavior, group dynamics. And the staff would meet in the evening and uh, plan for the next day. It's called action research, the way you do it. And one day, three of the participants walked into the staff room. And one of the leaders had been very active in democratic leadership and felt he couldn't ask them to leave. The next evening, all the participants walked in. <laughs> the Graduate students who are doing research on the groups continued. And one student said, at 10.30 this morning, Mary Jones made a comment that stopped the progress of the group. But Mary Jones was there. And she said, no, I didn't. And another participant said, yes, you did. I was bothered about that. And what the staff realized was this was more real than any discussions or mm. roles that they had. So like Fleming, who discovered penicillin by accident, yeah. They discover this process by accident. And what we do is we try and get the students, again, with caring, not with uh, meanness, uh, share their reaction. Because as a friend of ours said, it takes two to know one. I need you to know me. I know my intention, but you know the effect of my behavior. Hmm. And can build conditions where I learn the effect of my behavior. Nice. So... This program is vastly oversubscribed. So I think I read something that said like 85% of people who do a Stanford MBA are all trying to get on this course. So what's, what's the criteria that are set out to, for somebody to, to actually win a place on the course in the first place? Oh, we don't, (laughs) don't (laughs) we, we fortunately did not determine that Um, there, there, there's a whole process through which students bid for classes, particularly what's called high demand classes. And, um, and it's, it's a bit of a lottery, frankly. And um, actually it's not a bit, it is a lottery. (laughs) And um, if now what we do have is we have a, a, an applicant, what we call a pre-qualification that students need to fill out before they can uh, bid for the class or enter the lottery. And in that, we just want to make sure that they understand that this is a very different kind of class. Uh, One in which they will uh, be, I mean, they're they're pushed in every class and challenged in every class, but they're going to be challenged emotionally in this one. And we want to make sure they, you know, because the class has so much lore and there's so much myth around it, mm. we want students to take it because it's the right fit for them right now. Yeah. If, they've, if they've just had a big trauma in their life and they're starting a business and they're taking 20 units and they're already stretched way thinner than they can handle, maybe it's not the best time to take this class. Yeah. So... Like the name of the class, the touchy feely class, obviously that has a sort of tongue in cheek, um, you know, kind of humorous element to it. But do you feel like there's something sad about the fact that the kind of skills that you're teaching on this class? So you're you're helping people to give feedback to each other, to communicate, to to relate to people personally. So that is still sort of seen as a bit of an add on in business, isn't it? Rather than, you know, as it should be, I think anyway, and I'm, I'm sure you agree um, it's so central and fundamental to how you set up teams, how you set up businesses. So do you think it's 
sad in a way that the name hasn't changed after so long. And, and do you think it's still seen that way? I didn't know. I think there has been a real change as I've seen it over the decades. People would raise the question. Sometimes even our colleagues would raise the question. Why, why is this taught in school of business and not in a psych department or a social department? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think the world really is changing. And I think, um, Goldman's book, uh, Emotional Intelligence, uh, helped mm. it. Uh, but I think we also realize that we just aren't turning out widgets. You know, we need each other in organizations. Yes. Yeah. So well, the manager who says, I don't care about people, I just want to get the product out the door, that's not a company I'm going to invest in. Yeah. And I think that there's uh, more and more realization of that. Yeah. And David, just before we started recording, you um, you said to me that, a lot of participants on the course will experience really dramatic changes in their life. So as well as this being something that really aids their ability in business, they're also going home and having much more in-depth conversations with their spouse or with their child or with their parent. And, and it's really changing some of those personal relationships. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like what, why is that happening? And, 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 you know, have you got some examples of really, big changes that have happened as a result. Yeah, I, I think that what this course, what, what students learn, <clears throat> which we find so gratifying and so exciting, is particularly in a school of business, but I think elsewhere, people walk around putting on an image and they have the notion that if I'm to be interesting, leader-like, sexy, whatever you want, I have to pretend to be something that I'm not. And what they discover in this course, almost inevitably, is that the more they are themselves, the more interesting they are, the more attractive they are. And we frequently have students halfway through the course say to another one, "Uh, Bill, you know, I thought in finance you were really obnoxious. But now that I see see you, I see that you're human. Mm. I really like you. So, So where this translates is that they learn that they not only learn that they can be themselves, but they learn how to be themselves. They take this elsewhere. So I had um, a relatively mature student in his uh, 40s. We have some students who are that old, um, who told me afterwards, he said, um, I went home after this course and I said to my teenage daughter, you know, I realized I probably never really listened to you. And that's right. I never feel listened to. And he said, that was the most profound, satisfying conversation we had. It, it changed that relationship. Wow. So people learn, how could, I, um, how could I tell you what's important to me? How could I let you know my concerns, my worries, my hopes, my dreams, without having to put a spin on it? Yeah. And um, that applies to all relationships. Now, we're not saying that you go in and you self-disclose uh, everything. Uh, we, don't need, we don't need that. But people learn to say, this is what I need to share with you in the relationship so that you know me, the real me, not the presented me. Yeah. And, and if I might. I have some wonderful examples of this as well. And, and if I might, I, I'd like to go back to the name. So the name of the course is actually Interpersonal Dynamics. 
the the school doesn't call it touchy feeling. Right. Just the thousands of students who take it <laughs> call it touchy feeling. Um, and so, and by and you know, part of the part of the reason I feel the need to say that is that if you just Google touchy feely, you'll get a lot of weird things. Uh, so, um, so, uh, and I think there's something interesting about the fact that the students they don't have um, they don't have cute names for any of their other courses. Right. All the other courses are called entrepreneurship or corporate finance. Right. Only touchy feely (laughs) has its own little weird name. Um, And and I think that's one of the interesting. uh, There's something to that because Mm. they make it their own in a Mm -hmm. way that they might not make some of their other classes, because Mm -hmm. what they learn is that how they show up, who they are in these groups is what determines how much they learn. If I don't say much about myself, then I don't get much feedback from you. Then I don't learn anything about myself. Uh, The other thing that that I'll say is that fundamental, you know, back to where David started, uh, you know, people do business with people. They don't do business with ideas or machines or money. And so that's why this course has become so legendary and that's why we wrote the book because we didn't want just Stanford students to have this knowledge and these competencies Uh, Um, so the book is called connect Um, one question before we get into the book though Carol which is so you have um, taken a lot of these ideas and now run leaders in tech to take this into the tech world so um, just interested in how you see Silicon Valley right now in terms of obviously the tech world is you know, there's often this, uh, you know, kind of image of of people in tech as always being very geeky and very closed off and they don't want to communicate. Like, have you seen an evolution there? Like, do you feel like a lot of those organizations are much more focused on culture than they used to be and, and the, the skills of, of managers and leaders? I think I think it's shifting. I think that a lot of organizations in the Valley are starting to see that these are things they should have paid attention to way at the beginning, mm. which is why leaders in tech uh, has been very successful because we positioned ourselves to work with founder CEOs of early startups. They have to have yeah. raised an, what we call an A round, but they have to be pre-IPO. Okay. So not necessarily the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, although we'd love to work with them eventually. But we started because what we what we heard was a hunger by the CEO founders to establish initial conditions mm. in their organizations that would that would value relationship and that would build cultures that would be much more inclusive and diverse. And we've had 1,200 people apply to the program and accepted 120. So our yeah. uh, we've had, you know, pretty good Pretty good success, I'd say. Uh, and we've scaled slowly and plan to continue to do that. Now, it's I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tr- sugarcoat it. I'm not gonna say that the whole valley has finally found the light. There are still a lot of companies in the valley mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of tech mm-hmm. leaders who th- who believe that the only thing that matters is the product. And and you're not going to have a great successful business without a great product. That's true. 
but you're not going to have a sustainable long-term business mm. without paying attention to the people. You might come up with a fantastic product, right product, right time, right place, make a ton of money, retire to Tahiti. I'm not going to deny that. But if, if what, what matters, and that's what I find my leaders in tech founders care about, is they're very mission-driven. They're trying to build products that will actually make a difference in the world, but they want to build a company that they'll be proud to say yeah. they built. Yeah. So the book is called Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Friends, Family, and Colleagues. So it sounds like the, the aim of the book and the vision for the book when you started was trying to distill all the best bits from, from the course in, into a book. Is that, is that pretty much a good um, summary? Yeah. In essence, we were seeing, as Carol said, the impact on the students and the dream we have, I think, that the vision we have is, could we somehow <clears throat> have the reader have the same or a similar experience so that they, too, are transformed to some degree? So we want to impact the world, to nice. be honest. That, right. Thousands of MBAs and, uh, and a few hundred leaders in Silicon Valley is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep going. So um, the book starts with this idea of the six hallmarks of successful relationships. So I'm interested to hear what those six hallmarks are. Um, Should we start with that, first of all? Sure. Uh, First, I think I want to just change the one word. We use the word exceptional, the six hallmarks of exceptional relationships. And the reason that's important the reason I want to note that is that um, that the relationships exist on a continuum and you can have a successful, depends right. on how we define successful, yeah. but yeah. you can have a functional relationship, a perfectly functional relationship and not have it be exceptional. Yeah. Uh, you can have dysfunctional relationships at the very other end, but an exceptional relationship is one where we both uh, can be ourselves and where we both, and neither one of us is afraid of what the other one will do with whatever mm. we share with each other. Uh, that's one of the hallmarks. Uh, an, another hallmark is that we can we can have productive conflict. And in fact, we see conflict as an opportunity to deepen our relationships. Yeah. Uh, we're both committed to each other's growth. And uh, David, I might have missed a, a few elements there, but th- those are those are the keys. We're this high trust that in a sense of what you say is what you mean, uh, that I don't have to second guess you. But let me try to ground it in an example and uh, with Carol and myself. We started this book, uh, I think, having an exceptional relationship. And uh, the book uh, deepened it. I mean, we've disagreed on a lot of points. There have been things in which we've been upset at each other. Uh, but we quickly go to the other and say, I'm really bothered about what you did and what you said, and we got to work this one yeah. out. Um, we're considered, we are concerned about the other person. <clears throat> Carol has a tendency to take on too much, and I repeatedly say, you're going to burn yourself out. Come on, watch it. And I do that not because I just want her around, but I care for Carol, uh, and she cares for me. So I don't to say, do I dare say this? Uh, how is she going to feel? Well, I mean, I, I am, I think about that, 
but that doesn't mean I necessarily hold myself back. And if I do things that bother her, and I certainly have, yeah. Carol's going to say it. So I can relax. I, I can be myself and she can be herself. And yeah, you know, if I might, if I might add, one of the th- one of the most profound moments while we were writing this book was um, for me, uh, which and this is quite personal, is that I had always experienced my father, God bless him, may he rest in peace, as being very demanding, and as somebody I could never quite please, and. I had experienced David that way over the years also. Uh, And while we were writing the book, I mean, I'd gotten better because I'd gotten over my projecting my father on David. Otherwise we couldn't have written a book together in the first place. But Mm. there was a moment when we were writing the book where I sent him something and he said, this is good. and, And I think it could be better. And I found myself thinking, Oh, just like with my dad. And then he said, I just, I just know there's so much more there and you're so much, and there's so much more you could say that I want you to be able to say it mm-hmm. all. And suddenly my relationship with my father, who's been long gone, shifted for me because I realized that what my dad was not, was saying was not, you're not good enough. What my dad was saying was you're terrific. Mm. And it's not being reflected in what you've just done. It was so David and I have known each other for t- over 20 years. We've had a great relationship and I'm still learning about myself Yeah, as a result of working with him. And that sense of not just being committed to each other's growth, but actually, you know, having that relationship where someone's really helping you to, to, you know, expand to your full potential. I think that's exactly. Exactly. Super powerful. Yeah, Exactly. Love that. And there's a thing in the book where you talk about um, a time where you you didn't have an exceptional relationship. And uh, (laughs) there's a point where I think, Carol, you said, I don't ever want to talk to David again. So (laughs) tell us about that. (laughs) Well, that was before we did the book. We were um, teaching the course together. And I had been the one that was primarily, there's other faculty who also teach the course, not just uh, Carol and myself. And uh, I was in uh, sort of coordinating the faculty for the course, um, but was getting close to retiring or getting, I don't use that word. I say, I'm never going to retire. Getting to emeritus status <laughs> replaced me. And we had a kerfuffle around her wanting to have a title. And she felt that I wasn't supporting her. And um, we really got into a conflict where we didn't understand each other and for a while, we're, we still work together, but we're more formal with each other. And then we used the principles of the book, and we came back and we said, what's really going on? And I realized that I had heard her rational reasons, but I really hadn't tuned into what was behind him and what her feelings were. And it was only when I said, I still don't agree with what you want, but I think I understand you. And I could accept that that's where she was from, that we could rebuild the relationship. So a key part of what we're talking about 
is that you don't have to do things perfectly. I mean, we've done things that have screwed up a lot with each other, each of us with our spouse and with our friends and so on. But you can recover. Mm. And if you wholeheartedly recover and not just say, well, let's agree to disagree, that doesn't do anything, the relationship gets even stronger. And there's a wonderful image we have in the book, which a friend of mine told me about. There is a type of Japanese pottery, and I've forgotten the formal name. Kintsugi. Hmm? Kintsugi. Kintsugi, good. That when it's, when it's broken and you re-glue it, the Japanese fill in the break with gold or silver to yeah. hide the break because they say the break makes it more beautiful. And I think that because each of us learned about ourselves and learned more about the other, that was a very painful part. I, I, was, I was really deeply pained because I valued her and I thought I was losing a friendship. So, so we don't forget about that break. Uh, we highlight it. We say, okay, that's what we did. Hmm. Remember how we got into it and how we got out of it so that the next time around, the, the, the break won't be as big and we can repair it more quickly. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the last chapter of the book is all about this. Um, and one of the things that I think is really uh, important here is that we, in the writing of that chapter, we got even clearer about what had happened. Uh, it, I mean, yeah. we had gotten to the point where we were repaired. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't have written the book in the first place. But even even the talking about what had happened made made it clearer, I think, for both of us. And I think a really important point to highlight here that David just said, but I want to underscore it, is that it wasn't until I felt heard and emotionally met that I was prepared to re-enter into this relationship. Mm, yeah. It, we, could, we could talk about it from up here all we wanted, but until I felt met down here, yeah. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Yeah. I love that, the Kintsugi thing. And also um, there's something about writing, isn't there, where often, you know, when you write something, it's the process where you crystallize what you really think about it in your head. And oh, so yeah. that that feels really powerful, the fact that you're doing that together and sort of presumably sending, sending the drafts as they get better and better and clearer and clearer uh, back between the two of you. That's uh, Yeah, in really fact, we powerful. wrote every chapter... We- we probably wrote every chapter 12 times. Yeah. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I've written a couple of books uh, solo and then I've done two uh, in collaboration as a co-author. And it's funny how uh, when I when I signed the deal to do those two books as a co-author, I, I was convincing myself and my publisher was convincing me that uh, if you're a co-author, it's half the work. And actually, I think if you're a co-author, it's double the work, isn't it? That would be my thought. <laughs> it's, 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 double the, it's double the work and it's double the outcome. Yeah. Uh, I figure I could have, if by myself, written 70, 80% of this. Mm. Boy, I really needed Carol. Uh, yeah. not, not just so much the content, but to put the nuances on it, to correct my ideas where I may not have been fully clear. And then I corrected her ideas where I thought it was, you know, too general. 
Yeah. Uh, but but I think going back to the process of doing it, one of the one of our colleagues once said, um, "The only mistake you can make is refusing to learn from your mistakes." And I think that's a belief both of us have, and I think is central to the book and to the course. Yeah, that we all make mistakes, but they're learning experiences. And if you have that orientation, it allowed us to go back to that very painful time and not raise it again to say, you did something wrong or you really hurt me, but to say, what the hell went on? Why mm-hmm. did you the track? And when you see it as a learning opportunity, um, mistakes aren't that horrible or that, that thing to bury under the rug. Yeah. Um, I wanted to... Imagine- Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go, okay, Carol. I was going to say, imagine how different organizations would be if that's the orientation mm. most people mm. have. And I guess this leads us on to, um, I wanted to talk about um, one of the hallmarks there that you uh, picked up uh, on a few minutes ago, which is conflict. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, you know, some people see conflict as just like a necessary evil. And sometimes people are going to clash and then we just deal with that and sweep it under the carpet, but actually using conflict and mistakes as a productive thing, as an opportunity, as a, as, as a growth opportunity. And, you know, maybe you can talk about your own uh, conflict there, but I'd just love, love to hear more about um, what you think are some of the elements to make a a productive conflict rather than one that ends up becoming toxic. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I have to hold to the notion that in a conflict situation, I don't have all the answers. Also, I need to hold the notion that I'm dealing with a smart, competent person. I wonder what's going on. What piece of knowledge do they have that I don't have? Also, if we usually get on well, what's going on with our relationship that isn't working out now? That gets me into curiosity yeah. And rather than saying you're wrong. This is what you did. That's wrong. And if only you were a better human being, <laughs> which uh, doesn't lead to much productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I step back and say, yeah, I was really bothered. I'm hurt. I may still be angry uh, and I'm bothered, but what the devil is going on? Can, can we learn from it? And, uh, and can we make sure that, and not only we've solved this problem, but we've increased our problem-solving ability and know each other better. So that's, and I think that's what happened with our conflict, that I got to know Carol better about what was really important to her. And I got to know myself that I, at times, don't meet somebody emotionally. And, and that was hard for me to accept. But yeah. Carol told me to it. She said, you know, you tend to go too rational, too early. And so I learned something. It was, you know, I, I wish I had been better in the first place. But, you know, life is a process. In fact, it sort of close when I say life is a process. We have in the book a great quote about Renoir, the great French Impressionist painter. And the story goes, and I think it's true, he lived it into his 80s, that his last words as he was dying was, ah, that's the way to do it. I thought, what a wonderful model of life that I'm constantly learning. Oh, that's the way to do it. And if he lived four more years, he probably would have died with the same statement. Yeah. And it's not that we arrive 
we're, we're in process all the time. We're in process. And can we use that? Mm. I have another example, a con- another conflict example that might illustrate what D- David was just talking about. Um, so years ago, uh, my, my husband was learning how to cook. He's now a fabulous chef, but in the, in those days he was just starting to cook and he was taking on more and more of those responsibilities. And I, I, came into the kitchen one day and he looked like he was struggling with something. And I said, can I help you with that? And he looked at me and said, don't tell me what to do. And I was a little taken aback. And I thought, I don't know why he's all worked up. And I said, I wasn't trying to tell you what to do. I was just offering to help. Well, I don't need any help. So before it it escalated into a full-blown conflict, And now I want to bring in a concept that we talk about in the book about two antenna. What's going on for me, my internal antenna, and what signals am I picking up for you, Mm. the other person's antenna? And so I stopped. First, I thought, wow, I'm I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling rejected, you know, and I, I had to first get in touch with what was going on for me. But then I had to get curious about what was going on for him gee, I wonder why it's such an affront to offer him help. So I was able to come back and say, so honey, what's happening here? What just happened? I offered to help and I didn't say, I didn't think you knew what you were doing. Well, actually he, he said, I said, when you responded, don't tell me what to do. I didn't think I told you what to do. And he said, well, it made me think you didn't know what I was doing. I said, okay, well, what's that about? And we unpacked the fact that he's got some life history of an older brother who lorded it over him and is exceedingly sensitive to not being left to do things on his own mm. so that he can prove that he can do it himself. Yeah. Now, I've I'd lived with this man at that point 20 years, and I didn't know that. So, uh, but before it escalated into a, well, God damn it, all I was trying to do was help it. Well, you know, you're always trying to tell me what to do. And just before, you, you know, there was something about being in, having these two antenna and using them to not only uh, have a, uh, a conflict that didn't get out of hand, but also learn something about each other. And I said, you know, the way I show that I love somebody is by offering them to help them because I didn't get enough of that from my parents. Mm. There's a real. If I could build on that, because what Carol did, which was wonderful, was to catch it early on. But you don't have to. So here's another confession. (laughs) Years ago, Eva, my wife, Eva and I got into a conflict, and I got really mad. And I went out of the bedroom and I slammed the door. She opened the door. She said, "You come back in here. We aren't finished." (laughs) (laughs) and so so there was a place where it did escalate and i was ready to storm out because i was felt misunderstood and hurt and wronged and so on and then she forced me to back in thank god Mm. um so you even when it does escalate you can come back and you can say what was that about you know what are you doing the book is full of examples, by the way. Yeah. And what I'm picking up um, just in the way you both 
talk about these conflicts is number one, a real openness and number two, a real curiosity and commitment to curiosity about yourself as well as about the other person. And so I guess my question based on that is often the the moment of conflict is a moment where you've got two people with, you know, egos on show and their hackles up and the barriers go up. And that feels like a million miles away from the kind of dialogue that you're talking about. So do you have any any tips and tricks to to sort of de-escalate that that moment of conflict to get it back towards where you can have calmer, more logical, more open, curious kind of dialogue? Um, well, we do talk about the fact that sometimes you have to take a short break. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to take a breath and say, you know what? I think we're both a little too spun up right now. Let's let's take 10 minutes or 20 minutes and, you know, take a breath, but let's commit to coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's the key. Yeah. Uh, that's one way. I don't know, David, you might have some other thoughts here. No, I think that's that's crucial. And and the break may be ten minutes. It may be a couple of hours. Uh, it may have to be the next morning. But you've got to come back to it, and you've got to be committed to come coming back to it. I think the other thing is um, when you were saying that your hackles are up and you're feeling defensive. Uh, it's back to that other antenna that um, Carol was talking about where my tendency is to try and figure out all of the things the other person did that was wrong. Can I, when I'm reflecting and I may need time by myself, what's going on with me? Why am I so upset? What is, do I not feel heard? Do I not feel appreciated? Uh, What's with me that because I try not to be defensive, but we all get defensive. You know, what's going on that I got so defensive? And I think that if I can come back to the other person and say, hey, I realize there's some issues for me that got in here and I want to share them. Now, that requires the other person to both hear me and not to use that against me. So one of the characteristics of an exception relationship is the other person won't use information about me against me. Um, so if I go in, I say, you know, I was really hurt and this is what it meant for me. If the other person uses that to bludgeon me, it's not going to help in future conflicts. Um, but hopefully the other person will say, okay, that helps to deescalate a little bit. And it's, it's not an easy process. It may take several conversations. But, but can you stick in there? I, I think that um, it's a process of sticking in there. Yeah. We have another image in the book. When there's conflict that comes up, we have the image of you're trying to cross a swamp to get to the high ground on the other side. And at first, you look for the rocks you can step on so that you don't get mud on your boots. But at some point, the rocks run out, and there's only some mud ahead of you. Without slinging the mud at the other, can I? It's a messy process. I mean, it's, it's not an easy process. It can be messy. 
Am I willing to wade a little bit into that mud with the goal of getting to the high ground at the other side? So it's a matter of sticking in there, being persistent, being exploratory, catching yourself and helping the other person to catch themselves. Yeah. An easy process. None of this is easy. Mm. If it was easy, we wouldn't need the book. Uh, <laughs> or the course. <laughs> or the course. Uh, or the course. Or the course. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I think one of the things that students, the, one of the reasons the course is so, has so, so much impact and the reason that the, we hope the book will is that it really raises their self-awareness they start to realize, oh, when people do that or say that, my hackles go up. Mm-hmm. Then they start to then they start to say, at first they start to understand why. What is it that get that, that gets triggered in me? But then the more that happens, the more they have their own heuristics for how to manage it. You know, a version of that is when when somebody gives me a really difficult piece of feedback where they where I feel embarrassed or misunderstood or whatever. And it's really hard for me to hear. The harder it is for me to hear, the more I've learned to think, wow, there must be something Mm. really big and important for me here. Yeah. So I've trained myself. It didn't happen the first time or the second or the 10th, but it happens enough. And I go back to centering myself in that, wow, there's something important for me here. After a while, I'm able to actually learn and thank the other person as opposed to get defensive and push back. And you say in the book that they, feedback um, is... The- I, I think tie in with that. There's a great uh, statement, I, maybe apocryphal, but I hope it's true, <laughs> where the patient asks the therapist, how do I know when I'm cured? And the therapist said, when you catch yourself before I do. And <laughs> is she's still going to have that tendency. <laughs> and I've seen it. Yeah. She catches herself. And that's what self-knowledge is about. It's not about being perfect. Uh, we're all human. We're all flawed. It's can I understand my flaws and accept them and catch myself before they get me into trouble? Yeah. And you say in the book that um, feedback's the bre- feedback is the breakfast of champions. Right. So... I'm interested if you have any techniques that you use. Obviously, you've got to be open to feedback in the first place, which I think a lot of people, um, you know, I put myself in this category, could be more open to feedback. But if you are already open to it, do you have any good tips and tricks for kind of soliciting really good feedback? Because often people are really nervous about how they give you that feedback too, right? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the feedback model... Is based on the notion of three realities, not one reality, three realities. One reality is my intention, me, you know, what drives me, my history and stuff like that. The second reality is my behavior, what I actually say, do, the nonverbals, so on. And the third is the impact on you. And each of us only have two of those three realities. I'm an expert about David. Hmm. I know. David better than even Carol knows David or even knows David. I know my, I know myself and I know my behavior, but I don't know the impact. Carol, in a sense, is an expert on the impact of my behavior. So I need her to understand. Does my behavior 
have the effect that I want it to have? Or does it have some secondary costs that I'm not aware of? That model allows me to be open. It also allows me to um, correct when uh, other people don't do it right, because most feedback um, doesn't, use, doesn't stick with that model. So in this, we have a diagram, and we have a tennis net between the first and the second reality. And uh, as we say in tennis, you can't play in the other person's back court. In feedback, you can't play in the other person's back court. So if Carol were to say, well, David, the reason why you do X is because she's over the net. She's in my back court. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know why I do it. And that's what gets me defensive. Yeah. But if she sticks with the impact, I can't argue it. If she says, I don't feel heard, I can't say, no, you don't, because I will over her net. So that allows me to be open. And if the and most people are over the net, and if they're over the net, you can push them back. So if somebody says to me, well, David, you just want to dominate. Can I put my hold my defensiveness down and say, wow, that's not my intention, reality number one. But clearly I'm doing something, reality number two, that's making you feel that way. What am I doing? So I'm pushing them back to get the information I need to understand me. Yeah. Doing that without, without trying to cross the net. Yes. Right. I love that. Um, I, love and, to and, and, and the one thing I'll add is that the more I give you feedback, particularly using the net model and staying on my side of the net, the yeah. more I increase the likelihood that you'll give me feedback. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a reci- it's a reciprocal process. Yeah. Uh, your original question was, how can I get more people to give me feedback? Well, one way is to give them feedback, but yeah, maybe feedback, give it to yeah. them in the way that you want to receive it from them. And is that just down to trust, do you think? Is that because you're just building up that, that additional psychological safety with each other? Is, is, is that what's happening? Yeah, and, and here's the hard part. People say, well, I have to trust the other person. And that sees, seems, sees trust as a precondition. Um, I think that the more I take the risk of letting you know me, uh, taking the risk of giving you behavioral feedback, staying on my side of the net, that's what builds trust. So I don't want trust as a precondition. I want to see trust as a benefit that occurs mm. when um, you stick with this model of feedback. I love that idea about uh, the more I take the risk of letting you know me. That's a very powerful, it's a very powerful idea. Yep. It's central to yeah. the book. Yeah. And you see what that also does is it gives, actually gives me more control because if I don't let you know me, you're going to fill in the blanks. You're mm-hmm. going to make stories. And I have no control over the stories you make up. Yeah. But if I tell you what's going on with me, and hopefully I do it in a way that's authentic and you believe it, you mm-hmm. won't have to fill in the blanks. And again, back to curiosity, if somebody does something that I don't understand, rather than my trying to psych them out and fill in the blanks, Maybe I could just ask them. Yeah. 
you did that. I don't understand that. That doesn't seem like you. What's going on? Is a way that I could avoid making up those stories, which are very likely to be wrong or inadequate, even if partially right. Mm. Um, I was talking to on, on a webinar a couple of weeks ago about the idea of trust and building psychological safety through empathy. And the whole kind of premise was um, centered around kindness and the, the benefits of kindness in team environments and in group environments. And one of the, one of the comments that was made in the chat on this webinar was something along the lines of um, it's much easier to just be a, and then, a, you know, a, a yeah. swear word that I won't repeat on here. Um, you know, it, it actually takes a lot of time and effort to, you know, <laughs> to build trust and, and to give feedback in a really generous way and to, and to work on relationships that those relationships always need work. Right. Yes. So, yeah. so I guess that leads me on to asking you about pinches and um, it, it feels to me like there's, Excuse uh, me, Graham, if I, you said something which I'd like to build on, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, sure. When you said it takes time, I don't think it necessarily takes time. So, so, so let me tell you a story. Okay. I was um, years ago consulting with a CEO, and we met for the first time. He wanted to get to know me to see whether he wanted to use me, and I wanted to get to know him. And I found that when I went into that building, into the office, there was something funny that was happening to me. I was finding myself being a little careful. So we were talking. <clears throat> We'd been talking for maybe only 20 minutes. So I didn't know him that well. And he said, I don't know what's going on around here. People, in a sense, uh, you know, hold back. They, uh, they don't. Don't say things. Uh, they're very careful. I don't know what's going on. And I said, John, I don't know what's going on either. But I got to tell you something. Ever since I walked in and talked with the receptionist, and even talking with you, I find myself being very careful about what I'm saying. I don't usually do that. I don't know what the reason is, but I got to tell you, this is happening to me right now. And he sort of leaned back in his chair and he said, wow, it's happening to you now? And I said, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I don't think of anything specifically you or anybody has done. But I was listening to my internal antennae and we then could have a conversation because I took the risk of saying something <laughs> that he could have said, thank you very much. Now, please close the door as you leave. Um, so I don't think it takes time necessarily. Yes, it does take time, but it can be done much more quickly than we think. Right. Yeah. If I'm willing to share me and my reaction. And, it, and if I could just add one small thing, which is the more I believe you're going to tell me what's going on for you, really, the more I'm going to trust you. Mm, yeah but i suppose all of that so it, i i suppose it either takes time or it takes a risk right so what yes. you're articulating there is like in that moment you took a huge risk which could have derailed your whole reason for being there and i'm yeah i'm uh 
I don't know the outcome, but I'm guessing very with a very strong hunch that it didn't derail your <laughs> reason for being there. And it was, uh, a, you know, a, a big light bulb uh, moment too. But I think... Here's, here's an example mm. um, of... Uh, I have a, a, a one of the founders that I, that is in my program who was furious because his company had missed a big milestone on a Friday and spent all weekend just worked up about how furious he was. He has a Monday morning all-hands meeting, and he was all geared up to just blast them all on Monday morning. And Sunday night, he remembered that when we have talked, we've often talked about how anger is sometimes a secondary emotion. And there's usually something even deeper and more, more uh, fundamental. And he thought, okay, what am I so angry about? Oh, well, I'm worried. I'm worried that nobody else thinks this is as big a deal. I'm disappointed. Uh, and so the next morning, instead of coming in and blasting them all, he took a risk and said, hey, gang, I feel really disappointed. And by the way, I'm worried that I'm the only person who sees what a big problem this is. And guess what? Everybody doubled down. Mm. And they got that milestone turned around in two days when it should have taken them two weeks. So, But he took a risk. He didn't show up in that way that we sometimes think leaders need to show up. He was vulnerable. Mm. And what happens when in situations where it feels like you need to do that, but you're holding back, right? So, you know, there's there's always those moments in meetings where it's like, oh, I could speak up and I could say (laughs) something, but maybe we don't have the time or maybe people don't have the headspace for this. So there's all kinds of things that play out in your head. (laughs) Do you you have any thoughts on... Uh, things either things that leaders can do to encourage everybody to to be more open and to take more risks, or things that that you as a leader can do per, personally to uh, to increase that uh, you know kind of ability to have the confidence to take the risks. Well, we're not saying lay it all out. Uh, there are times to hold back. Yeah, right. <laughs> there are times where you should where you legitimately ask yourself. Uh, should I say this? Is this appropriate? Do we have time to work on it? But the first uh, thing I would say is I would ask myself, am I using this as an excuse? That's the first thing. The second thing I find is that if an idea comes up one time and I say, no, I probably shouldn't. But if it comes up again in my mind, hey, you know, I probably should say this. And if it comes up a third time, then I ought to say it. Mm. That's something's really going on. And of course, a lot of what we're talking about is how you say it. When people say, well, I'm going to be brutally honest, they're usually more brutal than they are honest. (laughs) Accusations and accusatory statements and so on. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, So you're in a meeting and you think there's an elephant in the room and nobody's talking about it. And you're not sure you're you're afraid the messenger is going to get killed for the message. Um, rather than saying you bunch of clods, you know, you're avoiding this issue to say, uh, look, I think there's a big issue here and it's a little scary for me to raise it, but I think we need to, for our sake, uh, 
avoiding this this elephant. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a risk because people may turn on you and say, uh, you know, that's that's only your issue. That's always a risk. But maybe you get to be known as a person who um, they can rely on to tell the truth. Mm. You're telling the truth not to nail them, but you're telling the truth for the sake of the company, for the sake of the team, and for the sake of the relationship. Yeah. Um, And I guess the final question before we finish, um, I sometimes feel like, so I wrote this book, Productivity Ninja, and it's, you know, it, it's essentially all about how to uh, manage your time and attention well. It's about how to be organized. There's a whole chapter on Inbox Zero and uh, being responsive on email. And I sometimes describe it as like it's a massive rod for my own back. <laughs> because now that I have this book and it's like, okay, Graham's the productivity guy, like oh, I better be really productive. Um, do you feel like over the years you've had that same rod when it comes to relationships? So do you feel like... Uh, being the relationship people is, is it sometimes a hindrance? Is it sometimes an annoyance? I'd, I'd love to just uh, be slightly playful with the question, but uh, just <laughs> just uh, see if there's a downside to being as good at this stuff as you clearly both are, right? Well, you know, I did a talk for my Leaders of Tech Fellows a couple of weeks ago where I talked about how embarrassing it was that... Um, I had a co-founder breakup with one of the founders that I originally started this with. And we're still wonderful friends and adore each other, but mm-hmm. turned out we, we were not good co-founders. And, um, and so I would say that I almost feel burdened. It's like, what? The queen of touchy-feely couldn't figure out how to figure this out? Well, then there's no, there's no hope for any of us. And in fact, I'm just, I'm just as flawed as any other human being. Mm-hmm. And, and we talk in the book about how it does take two to tango and, um, and every relation. And, I mean, I, I put it in the wind column that we're still very close and we're still really good friends. Uh, and uh, I do hold myself to, to kind of a ridiculous standard on many fronts, not just this one, but probably especially this one. And uh, to build on that is that it's not only I hold myself, but <laughs> other people hold me. So yeah. there are many times in which I don't do it right. And Eva says to me, you teach <laughs> this stuff. Why don't you do it right? <laughs> and of course, yeah. she's right. So I, I fail. But I'm finding there's another interesting cost that I'm willing to pay. I find meaningful relationships where people talk about what's important to them so rewarding that I don't have patience for the superficial cocktail party stuff. Mm. I'm bored by that. I'd rather be by myself or I'd rather try to take that conversation and drive it deeper. So when I'm in a cocktail party rather than going around and seeing how many people I can meet I try somebody who looks a little interesting and then I ask things about them because I want to find out about them so I'm able to build the sort of relationship even if it's temporary that's more meaningful but I must say I'm not the life of the party 
I'm not the joke teller. I think I'm funny sometimes. My kids think I'm too, tell too many puns. <laughs> this has a cost in terms of the sort of relationships I don't want to have. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I'm really excited for people to read the book. Um, I'd love you to uh, just tell us where we can get hold of it and uh, anything else you want to share in terms of how people can connect with you. Uh, well, the the I don't know where people can get a hold of it in the UK, but I do know they can order it on Amazon <laughs> cool. for sure. Um, and I, I suspect that uh, it comes out March 3rd. And once after it comes out, then I'm sure it'll be available in all your uh, retail uh, you know, from many retailers. Uh, and our website, www.connectandrelate.com, will have uh, more information on where to, where to buy it. It also has uh, all of the people that have endorsed the book and some little, uh, and a, a link to all kinds of other interesting things. So, um, yeah. Oh, can you name drop some names who've endorsed the book? Because there's some really good ones on there. Sure. Ray Dalio. Yeah. Um, Reed Hoffman, who was the founder of LinkedIn. Ariana Huffington. Uh, David Roger, who was the founder and CEO of Masterclass. Uh, yeah. D- Dara Treseder, who's the CMO of Peloton. Um, Irv Grosbeck, uh, who is the owner of the New York Cel- of the Boston Celtics, which is a big basketball team here in the yeah. United States. Um, Entrepreneur. Adam Grant. Yeah. Um, so there you go. If it's good enough for all of those guys, it's definitely worth uh, getting hold of. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Carol and David, for being on Beyond Busy. It's been, um, yeah, a huge pleasure and, um yeah just i just found that so in- insightful as well so uh just want to say thanks again thank, thank you, you may you have may you have many great deeper more meaningful relationships thank you <laughs> thank you enjoyed it <laughs>